Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums. We take a couple of weeks to listen back to them and then we get together to have a good old discussion. This time we're up to episode 19, which brings us to Hard Rain, released in September 1976. So, Rich, hello again. Hello again. It's been a little while. It has, yes. I think we ought to just apologise very quickly to uh, our beloved listeners out there for the kind of slight delay. There have been a few technical bits and pieces. Hopefully, as of now, we're going to be putting these podcasts out um, a little bit more regularly than the last couple have been. So, uh, yeah, good to see you again. You well, Mark? I'm well, yes. I haven't been sunning myself in France all summer like some of us has, which is... uh also contributed to the slight delay in podcasts, but uh, I'm not bitter in any way, shape or form. (laughs) Okay, well, this brings us on to episode 19 then, doesn't it? As usual, Rich, what's your background with this record? Well, my background on this record is I haven't got an enormous amount of background on it, really. I seem to recall a friend's father had a copy of it on vinyl. And the only track that I can really remember from it um, is Idiot Wind. And I liked Idiot Wind a lot at the time. I didn't own a copy of this, I must confess. I sort of, you know, when I was around at my mate's house, I'd I'd listen a little bit and that was that. And then I saw on sort of early YouTube a version of Idiot Wind or the version of Idiot Wind from this. And it kind of brought it back, I suppose, a little bit. I think the biggest thing, I've always been a bit confused as to why this is called Hard Rain and Hard Rain isn't on it. And uh, to this day, really, I'm quite confused by that. But I haven't got an enormous amount of history with it, really. What about you, mate? Very similar, really. Um, So I do remember picking up the album back in my early days of listening to Bob Dylan and being pretty underwhelmed by it. I think, yeah, you're right. There's something about the packaging. Um, the album cover is very striking, isn't it? Hard Rain is a cool title, even if the song isn't on the record. But once I actually started listening, it was pretty underwhelming. I, I remember quite clearly putting on Maggie's Farm and thinking, oh, yes, uh, I quite like Maggie's Farm. I'm looking forward to hearing this. And then the arrangement that comes on is so completely different from what's on the record. And I wasn't ready for that, to be honest. I wanted him to sound like he sounded on the record. And I know now how ridiculous um, an expectation that is, but I certainly didn't know it then. And it put me off. And there was nothing else on the rest of the record on first listen that really made me think, oh, wow, yeah, I really want to engage with this. And like you, years later, I came back to Idiot Wind through streaming um, and this era we live in now where everything's available all the time. But yeah, this has not been a record that I've listened to at all, really, since that first listen up to pretty much the preparation for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that context is quite important when it comes to this one. And when I was listening to it as a kid, I had no idea about the Rolling Thunder tour. I also probably just thought, oh, this is quite an old record. Um, And so... I probably forgave the sound quality, the muddiness of it, more than um, more than I might otherwise have done. But of course, there is plenty of live records that were released before this and kind of at the similar sort of time to this, where the sound quality was much, much better. And I think being able to set that in the context of kind of recorded music history 
you realize that that's another kind of even before we kind of got on to damning it, it's another thing that damns it a little bit, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, I yeah. mean, I've mentioned context. You know a lot more about the context of this than I do, but do you want to kind of uh, give us a little bit of a window into the, the story behind it then, mate? Yeah, just before I do, though, Rich, I think you make a really good point there. By the time we were listening to Bob Dylan, there were already so many more avenues to listen to him live. I mean, even the... <laughs> I hesitate to mention it, but even the MTV Unplugged stuff was doing the rounds by then. Yeah. And of course, we'd had the bootleg series one to three. I think Biograph as well was quite a big record for me when I first got into Bob. So in comparison to those things, this was very underwhelming for sure. And, and, and as you say, I was lacking the context that would have given it a bit more meaning. But yeah, let's get into the background. So we, we talked about a bit of this when we were thinking about Desire last time. But yeah, this was a really key period I suppose in Bob Dylan's uh, career and in his life generally so he'd come back into the, uh, the kind of popular consciousness and he was very much in the mainstream again after the success of Blood on the Tracks also of course the basement tapes had been very well received and he was still really in the aftermath of a very commercially successful tour 74 but I think by all accounts one of the things that he'd been dissatisfied with on tour 74 as we talked about when we, we looked at uh, before the flood was that it had become quite a soulless uh, experience. Um, there's that famous line about Bob Dylan and the band feeling that they were playing the role of Bob Dylan and the band rather than really taking part in something that was new and vital. And Dylan's response to that was that his next tour was going to be something very different, much more in the spirit of his earlier 60s performances, playing smaller venues, uh, going out with a lot of friends, trying to recapture that spirit of the early 60s. And that's what led to the Rolling Thunder review. The idea was very much that they were going to be treating things in a more impromptu fashion. They were going to be playing smaller venues. And they had a whole troop of people who were out on the road, didn't they, Rich? They did indeed, yes. Um, and it kind of makes for, I was going to say mouth-watering. Ear-watering just doesn't quite cut it, does it? But, I mean, you've got, for example, Joan Baez, who, whose history up until this point has been quite closely linked with Bob Dylan, I mean, of course. So Bob, Joan Byers was involved. Roger McGuinn uh, from The Birds, of course, was involved. Journey Mitchell doesn't really need any kind of introduction, but uh, Journey Mitchell guested on some of these shows. Um, Rambling Jack Elliott, who, of course, was uh, arguably kind of one of Bob Dylan's mentors from back on kind of McDougal Street, kind of Greenwich Village back in the day, uh, folk kind of singing environs. And then, of course, you had a whole batch of people who played on the Desire album, notably bassist Rob Stoner, drummer Howie Wyeth, and, of course, violinist Scarlett Rivera, who arguably kind of makes that album, gives it its sort of sound. And kind of implausibly, Spider from Mars, Mick Rompson as well, who, I mean, is an astonishingly great, or was an astonishingly great guitar player, and without wanting to kind of go down the blind alley of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, is absolutely outstanding on that record as well. But anyway, he's he's involved in this. So, it, I mean, it really does make you salivate, doesn't it? You look at that as a kind of cast list, and you think, this is just absolutely astonishing. How could it go wrong? And my understanding is it didn't really go wrong because when in on the first half of the tour, which I think you're going to talk a little bit more about, everything went really, really rather well. So you had all of these amazing people playing in 
small venues, intimate venues, sounding great, etc., etc. It's just a shame that they didn't choose that section of the tour to record, isn't it, mate? <laughs> well, exactly, yes. Um, so it's interesting, isn't it, that this is still only the third Bob Dylan tour since 66, if we include the 66 World Tour, then we had Tour 74 with the band, and now we've got this one. And all of those tours have got their own mythology, haven't they? But this one in particular certainly has no lacking of, of romanticism uh, attached to it. So as well as that stellar cast list of musicians that you talk about, we have people like Alan Ginsberg tagging along. There was a film crew, of course. Bob Dylan was, I don't know if he'd, he'd planned to uh, produce uh, Ronaldo and Clara in advance of this. I suppose he must have done because he had Sam Shepard along, didn't he, as a as a screenwriter as well. So you had all these people in tow as well. There's some marvellous footage in the Scorsese documentary that came out a couple of years ago of them rocking up in these little towns in the American Northwest and yeah. just putting flyers in uh, on windscreens and things like that. And that was very much the vibe of the, of the thing. So as you say, by all accounts, it was a tremendous experience. Uh, everybody seems to have had a fantastic time doing it. Audiences were very, very receptive. And I think just to, just to, to sort of butt in there, but that I, that word experience, I think, is very key because this is, it's kind of, it's a multimedia sort of thing, isn't it? It's not that we're not just talking about the music here. We're talking about a cultural event. I mean, the involvement of Ginsburg, the fact that they visit Kerouac's grave and all of those kind of things, this is much more and designed to be much more uh, than, than just about the music. Sorry, I've, uh, I've rained on your parade there, mate. <laughs> no, that's right. It's 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 a very fair point, and I think it goes back to what I was saying at the start. It was this kind of quite conscious effort to recapture the spirit of the early '60s. How successful that was, we can't possibly comment, but it certainly did lead to this tremendously creative energy that was very very well received by audiences. And it's a little bit. I always feel a little bit like the uh, the old stories about bands like The Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane when they were supposedly playing these fantastic acid-fueled gigs out on the West Coast. But actually, when you listen back to the recordings, it's just a lot of people noodling and you really had to have been there and you really had to have been on something to have got the magic. But I think in this case, we, we, we don't have to worry that this is something that's only mythologized because we do now have the Bootleg Series Volume 5 that captures some of the performances from that kind of autumn leg of the tour. And of course, we've got the Scorsese film that we've already talked about, which is jam-packed full of astonishing footage and tremendous performances. So we do know that it was a tremendous set of concerts, set of, a, a tremendous set of performances, and a jolly good time was had by all, by all accounts. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when you when you kind of put it like that, you've got this the perfect kind of art house sort of environment, haven't you? You've got all of these really notable artists all together in this kind of wonderful environment. You've got them touring small venues, et cetera, et cetera. You've got them playing, as historical documents uh, now kind of prove, uh, these wonderful, wonderful shows. So where did it all go wrong then? How, how, come, how come when I listen to uh, Hard Rain, I think, yeah, like Idiot Wind, and then uh, the rest of it leaves me uh, somewhat cold? Well, I guess the, the, the conclusion of the Rolling Thunder review proper is with the night of a hurricane at Madison Square Gardens, isn't it? Yes. In December yes. of 75. And then 
How the second leg of the tour came about is not really clear, but there was the night of the hurricane two, which was in Houston, Texas. And then the story goes that Dylan had this film in production, costs were spiraling, and he basically needed a bit more cash to finance it. So they booked in a whole series of shows for the spring in the South and the Southwest. And they were playing larger venues for a start. That's one of the big differences yeah. uh, between the autumn leg and the, the spring leg of the tour. But also the, the, the testimony of people who were involved is that something was just a bit different, a little bit off compared to what had been happening in the autumn. And of course, we can't say at this distance what it was. Part of it might just have been that thing where when you try to recapture the magic of something, it's never quite the same second time around. Part of it might have been that Bob Dylan was in a different headspace by the time we got to the spring of 76. Pretty well documented. His marriage was very much in the final stages of collapse by then. And perhaps it was just a, a function of the fatigue of being on the road for all that time and putting in these shows, sometimes two shows a day, of course, as we, as we mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts. So what, for whatever reason, all of those factors or other ones, the, the magic that had been so prevalent in the autumn peg of this, this tour didn't really exist. And it's probably more sensible to think about the spring tour as a completely different tour to the autumn one. I think that that's very, uh, very wise. And that it's an interesting way of putting it, because I think that if you're going to ever capture something that is so kind of mercurial and wonderful and incredible, I think great art tends to be it kind of walks a tightrope doesn't it it's quite flimsy and quite fragile and I think the moment you put any of those factors that you just mentioned into that I think it is going to take away uh, from the magic I mean certainly the bigger venues I think we'll get on to talking a little bit more about that in in a few minutes but the uh, I mean Bob Dylan as well lest we forget is not known for his kind of steadfast wish to avoid flitting from thing to thing and uh, it's it's not as if the notion of him kind of getting bored and wanting to move on to things is unprecedented. So there's that. But also, I think the fatigue thing, particularly if you're playing two shows a day, it's an intense thing, isn't it? And keeping up that intensity, particularly playing bigger venues where you're not going to necessarily feed off the crowd in the same way. It's similar to, you know, when you get like players in the sort of Champions League final and they say, well, they look very leggy. It's like they're tired and you're thinking, well, why? And you can't, it, to, to perform at that kind of pitch, that's a terrible, sort of very clunky footballing analogy, but um, hopefully it kind of makes sense. It's that idea that if you're trying day in, day out to wow audiences not every single experience can be outstanding not every single experience or, or night can be one when you kind of attain the absolute pinnacle and peak of your powers no and of course speaking about the fatigue it's not just that we're on the second leg of the tour by the time we get to the recording of hard rain we're right at the end of the second leg of the tour aren't we so worth speaking a little bit about how the album came about i suppose there was a a tv special that was being recorded which uh, was recorded at Fort Collins on the 23rd of May, which I think was the penultimate show of the whole shebang. And a lot of hard rain comes from that show, of course, although I think four of the tracks come from the Fort Worth show the week before. So we really are right at the, the fag end of this. And you you can certainly excuse uh, the musicians for uh, feeling some fatigue by the time we get here. But I think it's also worth pointing out that we've got this show that took place in Fort Collins. We've got this TV special that went out in the September. 
76. We've got Hard Rain that was sort of slated to tie in with the TV special coming out in the same month. But all three of those things are very different beasts. So the Hard Rain record itself is only a single album to start with. So it can't possibly hope to capture the uh, totality of that concert. But it doesn't even really capture what was on the TV special. The song selections are very different. Um, and of course, we've got these songs from Fort Worth that are, that are filtered into them. So yeah, all in all, a, a rather curious background to the way in which this record came about, both in terms of its um, conception, how it was tied into this TV show, and how it doesn't really reflect either the tour itself or the TV show that it was supposedly uh, associated with. No, I think the the whole thing of them having run out of steam on the tour itself, I think they'd run out of steam in even in the sequencing of tracks and the putting together of the album, quite honestly. That's how it kind of how it feels. And I think it's fair to say that that was reflected really in the way that this was received at the time. I mean, I think we have to be very careful. We mentioned context before that we are listening to this in 2022. If you were listening to this in 1976, you would quite possibly have a different view on this. If you'd been to some of the concerts, though, for example, you'd almost certainly have a different view on this. But I think that the fairly negative receptions, I think there have been instances in the past when Bob Dylan's uh, albums have been kind of slammed on release and really heavily criticised. And then we've kind of looked at these reviewers and said, well, what were you thinking? This is an absolute stone-cold classic. And uh, I find that I'm uh, largely agreeing with a lot of what was said in 1976 here. So, for example, I, I think one of my favourites is the uh, Robert Christgau one, the folkies whose idea of rock and roll is rock and roll cliches. I mean, that kind of says a lot, doesn't it? Uh, your thoughts, mate? Yeah, I, I think that's that's very, very harsh, but it's got a kernel of fairness to it, hasn't it? The other quote that we came across was from Rolling Stone magazine, where they talked about how the hard rain recording seemed to come at a time when the Rolling Thunder review, so joyful and electrifying in its first performances, had just plain run out of steam. And that sums it up, doesn't it? That the, the reception was very much that, OK, you've done this marvellous tour, but you haven't captured it on this record. No. And... I think, therefore, that largely the reception is is sort of is kind of justified, isn't it? I mean, I, I would go along with that quote as pretty much underlining most of what we uh, what we've talked about so far. That said, well, we are Bob Dylan fans, and we must obviously look at the fact that there are some high points on this record. Sorry, mate, what were you going to say? Well, yeah, I was. No, I was going to say I think that we should probably park that thought there for a moment, and why don't we go through the album? with the fresh ears that we've acquired from listening to it over the last couple of weeks and see how our thoughts on it stack up against that criticism which we've uh, we've put out there as a as a comparison point. that sounds like a fair plan i mean one too many mornings i quite like it if the truth be known i mean i think with a lot of these songs i like the ideas behind them i think that my problem is probably with the execution because I think that what he does with, or what the band do with One Too Many Mornings is really, really interesting. I think it's really cool. It's just not very easy to listen to because it's it's muddy and the tempo's a bit all over the shop and 
it's a bit rough and it's a bit ragged for all of those reasons that we've just talked about previously. But as an idea, I still think it kind of holds water. What's your take on one too many mornings? Then? I'm going to disagree with you and say something that I think works as, a, as an arrangement. I think you've got, there's a, there's, well, let me put it this way. There's a, there's a power and an energy that runs right the way through this record. And in a way, it's quite a punky record, isn't it? Um, that kind of immediacy and the, the, uh, the violence of the delivery at times. But I think that in a lot of the record, that sort of papers over the cracks of pretty ragged performances or certainly pretty ragged mixing presentation. But I think on these three songs, so One Too Many Mornings, Shelter From The Storm and Idiot Wind, I think we've still got the core of an arrangement that really works, that's allied to that drive. And I think one of the things I love about all three of those tracks is the drumming. I think that it's absolutely fantastic, particularly on Shelter From The Storm, but also on One Too Many Mornings. The drumming really drives the song. And it's, it was, I think we're still in an era with Bob Dylan where his studio performances almost always lack that, that viciousness, that drive that you can capture in a live performance. And I think that's probably changing in, in a lot of recorded music, you know, kind of studio techniques evolving to the point where you can have this kind of bigger, heavier sound. But largely, I think this is something that Dylan hasn't really come close to since Like a Rolling Stone and Highway 61 Revisited, I would say. But we really do get that on these tracks. And I think that's what gives, when the album's working, when it's, when it's rocking, that's what gives it its drive. Yeah, and I think particularly with this song, with One Too Many Mornings, it, there's two kinds of live albums, really, or two kinds of live recordings. There's the, here's how it sounded in the studio, I'm going to ape it entirely, or here's something that's completely different and reinvented uh, from what I did in the in, in the studio. And this very much falls into that latter category. And I think you've either got to do one or the other, because otherwise, as a live album, you just get a quite shit mishmash of somewhere in between. Uh, and, and so I think that this almost sounds like an entirely new, different song, basically. And so I think it really works as a result of that. I quite like Oh Sister. I think it's pretty tender in its delivery. I like Lay Lady Lay as well, particularly the uh, pedal steel uh, that comes across on that one. I think that's very impressive. What I would say is that Idiot Wind, I know we've mentioned it already, is still my kind of standout track on this uh, as a record. And I think that virtually everything else on this kind of pales in, in comparison to it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, as you said, with one too many mornings shelter from the storm also has this uh radical reimagining and i think it really works surprisingly well as a rocker when you hear the version on blood on the tracks i don't think it should work as a rock song but somehow they do make it work yeah um but for sure as you say the the highlight is idiot win shall we should we give that a little bit of attention then rich yes i think we should i mean it, it's almost such an incredible performance and i i <laughs> It's difficult, isn't it? Because leaving putting this on the on this album when it's so much better than everything else on there can't help but kind of pale the other songs that surround it, really. And I mean, it is an astonishing, astonishing performance. It grows, his performance grows throughout this. The band get tighter, they drive harder as it goes on and on and on. It's never gets tedious and it's a very very long song but there's always something there to draw the listener in to kind of capture you and 
I mean, this, I suppose, for someone listening to this in 1976 who was intrigued about the tour, this probably, or what I imagine, kind of captures that sort of magic that is pretty absent on a lot of the rest of these tracks. It's just an amazing performance. Yeah, and it's it's in the light now of uh, what we have available on the Bootleg series and in the Scorsese documentary that we can see that this showed, A, what the band were capable of, but B, it's also something very different from what had been going on in the autumn. I, I think there's there's an interesting point about the record, the, the actual record, Hard Rain, and the actual physical record, the Bootleg Series Volume 5, which purports to be more or less what you would have got if you turned up to a show in 1975. I don't think it actually quite is, but that's the sort of um, suggestion yeah. when you uh, you crack open the, the double CD case. And I think what that record does capture to, to a very great extent is the sort of the mystical quality of desire you've got the the musical quality for sure um you know the the way the violin leads a lot of this stuff the really sympathetic arrangements but also in a very literal sense it's very desire heavy in terms of the song listing mm. the track listing on the record whereas hard rain leans a lot more on blood on the tracks which is not necessarily a bad thing but I think it's another uh, pointer towards the fact that the feeling we've got here is is very, very different from what you've got in the autumn. And that kind of, I don't know, that incandescent anger that he's conveying throughout this performance is something that you don't get on the Bootleg Series Volume 5, and it's something that's unique to this record. Um, and you're right, I think it elevates this record into something that every Bob Dylan fan wants to listen to, almost regardless of what you think of the rest of the the album and we probably do have to mention for completeness's sake that the story is that sarah had arrived i forget whether it was the day before or on the morning of the, of the concert and kids were there as well they there was there was very clear instructions to the tv crew that they were to be kept out of shot at all times but sarah supposedly was very close to the front row if not in the front row and he's singing this directly to her and as we always say you don't need that backstory to appreciate the the, the power of the performance but I think it probably is fair to say that it's something that, that, that goes some way to explaining what happened on that day I think so yeah because I mean the bitterness that comes through uh, I um, I think that there is that bitterness throughout Blood on the Tracks which is kind of absent from Desire and I think that you're right about leaning on the different records for the different legs of the tour I think that basically you would have a far warmer, more kind of intimate experience if you'd gone to the first leg of the tour, really, versus this kind of far more vitriolic, bitter, embittered kind of uh, delivery that seems to very much be at the forefront here. And that's a big part, I think, of why this album was received so poorly at the time. Because even for us now, with the, the benefit of hindsight, you know, if we think about the Rolling Thunder review, we think about those snippets of him performing Tangled Up in Blue, but also those songs from Desire that are so key to the whole experience, like Romance in Durango, Isis, Hurricane itself. All those tracks are missing from this. And yeah. it almost isn't it isn't a rolling with a rolling thunder review record at all. It's something quite different. Yeah, I think you're right. It it does not hang together in a way that suggest that it's in, ever been intended to, to serve as a document of the tour, really. 
And I think that uh, I think that's what makes it so sort of difficult. I mean, it's a very Bob Dylan thing to do. I mean, this is the guy who put out bloody self-portrait, lest we forget. It's it's uh, it, it wrong foots us as listeners. It completely confounds our expectations. Yeah, is it fair to say, mate, that it is that he was putting kind of commerce here over kind of artistry in terms of the record? We've spoken before about cash grabs, haven't we? Yeah. And I think both of us are, are of the view that we'd quite like to do a cash grab ourselves, so we don't blame anyone else for, for doing it. Um, oh, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'd have put out a hard rain, for sure. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. might, um, do one, might, might do one tomorrow. You never know. Like it's, uh, <laughs> Well, indeed. Um, but I think we are really at the point here where this is a cash grab of a cash grab. So the second leg of this is a cash grab to start with. And now we're getting the album, which doesn't even represent the second leg of the tour. And you're right, there's been no effort to make it represent the second leg of the tour. I mean, the fact that it's just a single album is, is such a strange thing in itself. There's a great quote from Rolling Stone uh, on this. Kit uh, Rackless, is it? I'm not oh, quite yeah, sure yeah, yeah. His, name. Um, his quote on this was that, to say that Hard Rain is Dylan's least accessible, most chaotic and contemptuous album since Self-Portrait is not enough. It doesn't explain why Dylan has made an album which demystifies the Rolling Thunder review instead of memorialising it. And, well, I think I agree with him. I mean, certainly the second part of that, we've got this record which does nothing to capture even the show itself that it's taken from, much less the wider tour. And I think that does lead to a sort of whiff of contempt for the audience when you think about the way that it's been sequenced. But I don't know, do you think that's too harsh? I think it's one of these things where I kind of, as a listener or as a Bob Dylan fan, I kind of want so much to believe in the the mysticism and the mystique of this uh, this sort of first leg of the tour that I feel probably now that I know the context of it, like I as a listener have been a bit shortchanged by this because it's not one too many mornings and um, idiot wind notwithstanding. I think that these are these could have been taken from any sort of leg or any gig in his tour, really, couldn't they? They, they don't. There's nothing massively special that kind of leaps out at me. Whereas I think that had you, well, as we know through the documentary evidence, if you'd have gone to a lot of the shows on that first leg of the tour, I think you would have seen something, if not earth shattering and, and kind of life changing, then certainly something that's more than just a gig, something that was like an event, a happening, an experience, a kind of 60s conversion sort of thing. And I think that therefore this doesn't really deliver, does it, in that kind of way? It doesn't, unfortunately. And one of the other things that we've, got to consider is the other big charge that's laid against this record regularly which is that the sound is just so muddy and I personally think that's a fair criticism I know you've got some thoughts on this Rich but there are a couple of things I wanted to raise before I let you uh, loose on that <laughs> so one of the things that's striking when you watch the TV special is that you've got a ridiculously large number of guitarists on stage it almost gets into Elvis Presley from Hawaii territory at, at some points. But I did count five guitarists at one point, uh, plus the pedal steel guy. And that's not necessarily a problem. But you get little bits throughout the record that sort of just make you think, oh, well, yeah, it's a little bit overdone. For example, 
you mentioned earlier that you you enjoy Oh Sister, and I I, I agree. It's a it's a good song, obviously a great song, and it's a good performance. But one of the things that always irritates me about this version of it is the way in which the electric guitar seems to be battling against Scarlett's violin. And I don't know, they they just don't seem to to gel properly. I don't know whether it's for mixing, but I think it might just be the number of musicians that are involved on stage in this uh, performance of it. But whatever it is, it's very, very different from the the version that we get on the bootleg series uh, when the violin leads in in a in a much more organic way and much closer to what we get on the desire arrangement. And I think it's a much stronger performance for that. So I think that's a part of it for sure. But also I think on the weaker tracks on this album, there's just a sense of uh, things not quite being under control, things just slipping off the tracks a little bit. You've got that arrangement of Maggie's Farm, which has a lot of energy, but I don't think it really works as a as something you can buy into. And on Stuck Inside of Mobile, which is one of my favourite songs on Blonde on Blonde, as we talked about at the time, it feels rushed. It's not really capturing anything it's just sort of the band are, are rattling through it and they don't really ever seem to get to the heart of the song in any in any way so i think there's a very strong case for saying that the album suffers from it's just it's the arrangement whether it's the arrangements or the mixing or the recording i don't know but there's something about the sound that just doesn't quite hit the spot on this album yeah i think space is very important when it comes to any recordings and there's not a great deal of space on this. It's kind of that onslaught. I mean, if you've got five guitarists on stage at any one time, it's difficult to see that each of those five is playing, is, is completely necessary, or that they're going to be playing different stuff, or they're going, because they're going to be covering the same kind of frequencies. And I mean, if you've got like Phil Spector, for example, with the wall of sound, I mean, that's a different kettle of fish because, of course, it's thought out and it's done in a studio. And of course you're covering all sorts of different sort of sonic kind of areas, I suppose. I don't think this is, and and that kind of gives it that sort of almost like auditory onslaught that we've mentioned already. I wonder as well, and this might just be uh, my own kind of suspicions, but I wonder if they might be a bit hamstrung by the kind of PA systems or whatever, if they've been used to playing in smaller auditoriums or theatres or whatever, to kind of transfer that and shove it into a stadium where you're playing with huge PAs or whatever, all of the kind of finesse and stuff like that goes anyway. And it's whether or not they could hear well enough, whether or not it, it, it kind of translated to that kind of environment. I don't know, but it it kind of feels like this is a bit all or nothing. You know, let's just, uh, let's just play everyone. Right. Okay. It's not going that well. Play a bit louder, kind of turn it up, you know, <laughs> play, play at the same time. Let's double it or triple it or however many we need to uh, with, with all these guitars on stage. That's kind of what I think here. And I think the sound is a problem. Definitely. Yeah. And I think you're onto something there. We did have a comment on Twitter. I, I apologize. I forgot the, person's username but they made a very opposite comment i thought 
which was that the energy seems to be compensating and covering up the fatigue. And I think that's what's going on, really. That sort of sense of, you know, crank it up and we'll get through it. One, one more push, boys. There's a lot of that coming through, I think. Just before we wrap this section up, I, I did just want to say as well that the final thing that I think this album is poorly served by is the sequencing. It's... It's a good, it, it, obviously we can't really get away from Idiot Wind, this masterful performance, but the finale of the concert was uh, Hard Rain, the song Hard Rain, which is a great performance that kicks off the TV show, um, which is obviously completely missing from the album. We've also got all of uh, Joan Baez's duets with Bob cut from this. Um, and we've got the the songs from Fort Worth just sort of slotted in. So we never the album never gets a chance to get going it's always stop start stop start and although we end up with idiot wind and we can't complain about that i think that's something else that just means that the album never has a flow combined with the muddiness combined with the sort of the angularity and the sort of the rough edges that you know the energy doesn't quite compensate for i think that's what leads us to this kind of messy final product that if you were being harsh you could call contemptuous to the fan or certainly I would say is something that doesn't hit the spot for me. Yeah, I think I'd go along with most of that. I mean, um, this is probably a good time actually for us to just explore a few Shakespearean links. Obviously the name of this podcast is Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. And so we do try and where possible make uh, links between the works of uh, Bob Dylan and the immortal bard. I think it's a little bit more difficult with this one. And I think that the links that we would make are probably far more to do with the Rolling Thunder Review Tour than they are with Hard Rain as an album, really. Um, I mean, obviously, back in Shakespeare's time, the notion of actors, they were kind of, if not illegal, then they were certainly kind of considered outlaws, effectively. A lot of performances would take place, certainly when Shakespeare was touring, uh, rather than being in the globe outside of the city walls um, they would have fantastical costumes the authorities didn't care for them very much and there was a kind of sense almost that theater troops kind of operated on the on the margins these kind of liminal figures and I think that is very much the sense that we get with the raggle taggle kind of review and this interesting cast of characters and notable musicians that are running around with the band in the first leg and so I think that that's kind of if, if if we're thinking about Bob Dylan and Shakespeare as performers here I think that's the kind of link that we get it's kind of slim pickings to be honest with you mate I know that in the past I've uh, I've managed to kind of expand on Bob Dylan and Shakespeare links. This one is not one that really lends itself to that kind of comparison, particularly as I think that what links do exist are far more concerned with the stuff that wasn't recorded on Hard Rain than the stuff that ultimately emerged. So without wanting to kind of dig myself too much deeper, I think we're probably on to wrapping this up, maybe starting to think about last thoughts. But yes, before we do, I think you're onto something there, though, because that theatricality is so much a part of the first leg of the Rolling Thunder review, isn't it? And even just saying those three words brings to mind that iconic image of Bob Dylan in his what is it? Is it a cowboy hat or what kind of what kind of hat is it? But you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, you remember those adverts in the in the eighties and nineties? You can't buy it in the shops. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's got that. He's got his uh, his face made up with that 
really strikingly pale makeup. Yeah. Um, and he's got his he's got those incredible gestures, hasn't he? His eyes are shooting all over the place. He's doing all sorts of things with his hands. Yeah, it's the the, the theatricality of the whole show. It's a show, isn't it? That's what it is yes. uh, that they're they're putting together. And you have none of that uh, that survives through to the um, what we can see on the videotape of the the Fort Collins concert. You've got something very different. Just on that, actually, um, what you do have in the Fort Collins concert is everybody wearing those uh, bizarre head covers. Some people are in cowboy hats. Some people have got the bandanas. Bob Dylan's got some kind of rag. I don't know what it is. And I was I was trying to um, find out what was the backstory behind all of that. I really don't know if this should be uh, taken at face value at all. But T-Bone Burnett, who was involved in the tour, yeah. said that uh, there'd been some uh, brickies working at... Bob Dylan's house in the winter between the two legs of the tour. And they'd been wearing these uh, cloths around their head to keep the cement mix off their, out of their hair. And that had inspired Bob Dylan to, uh, to start wearing this thing when he turned up at the first show. And gradually, as, as without anyone saying anything about it, gradually as the tour went on, more and more people started wearing these things until by the time you get to Fort Collins, pretty much everyone is wearing. Joan Baez says that she held out until pretty much the last week of the tour and then she finally started wearing this really very striking uh, red headscarf, which somebody very unkindly said uh, was more Bloomingdale than Big Sur. <laughs> See, um, I but... thought it was I thought it was to do with that sort of strange jazz musician, space jazz, Sun Ra. He used to make all of his kind of musician devotees where well it was kind of like tinfoily kind of hats but there is and i'm going off on a slight tangent here people often wonder why it was that when asked patty smith and bruce springsteen both declined to come on this tour and they both kind of suggested well our, our careers are you know on upward trajectory we're very very busy i reckon it was all to do with not wanting to wear hats mate i'm gonna just say <laughs> Well, Bruce was uh, no stranger to the bandana, was he? But perhaps it was the white makeup in his case. Too soon, so. too soon, you see. Too soon in his career. You, you wait till the 80s for that, young man. <laughs> that crazy well, think, idealistic yeah. decade. That, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we are almost ready for last thoughts, yeah. Rich. But just before we get there, I did want to throw one curveball at you. And I think it's fair to say that we, we're not really sold on this as an album. I think we probably do agree with the criticisms that were made yes. at the time and yes. it's not one we're going to go back to very much but I was just thinking to myself that even with all that being said is it fair to say that this is actually the best Bob Dylan live album that had been officially released to this point or let's say the best collection of Bob Dylan live performances that have been officially released to this point because when you think of what was out there in the public domain legally it's pretty slim pickings isn't it yeah i think i think you've got a point there because it's very easy with the benefit of hindsight and setting this release in a gargantuan career that he's had to sort of say well it's not that great really but yeah i suppose if you were a bob dylan fan wanting to know what bob dylan sounded like live arguably this is probably a better representation even with all of the bits and pieces that we've picked apart than before the flood really which is 
to all intents and purposes, a band album with Bob Dylan guesting on it, isn't it, really? This is far more kind of a Bob Dylan front and centre. So I think I'd probably go along with that, yeah. And it's so funny to think, isn't it, that of these legendary tours that he'd conducted to this point, many of which had been performed in the, in the, in the presence of quite sophisticated recording machinery, we have so little, actually, that was released contemporaneously. And it's only in recent decades that we've had all these bootleg, official, officially released bootlegs that, that tell the real story. Uh, it must have been quite a, quite a strange, strange sensation for a Bob Dylan fan. And you can understand why people did go out of the way to find bootlegs, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a really odd thing, isn't it, that, that music now is worth, in monetary terms, so much less than music was worth then, recorded music. But now, of course, every single singer-songwriter or musician is they're putting content out there all the time. They're recording everything. They're chucking it all out there. Whereas you had all of these astonishing performances that were just, they were just that, weren't they? They were, it was much like, I suppose, I'm going to risk kind of uh, the wrath of uh, Shakespearean scholars out there. But I mean, you went to, the, the theatre in Shakespeare's time, it was a one-off. You would take your memories with you, but of course there was no way of recording it. And it wasn't even like the first folio had been published with all of the uh, scripts or anything along those kind of lines either. So it, it, it's kind of like that, isn't it? You went along for an experience and that was it. You took your memories with you and you, you kind of done. And whether or not you had a good night or a bad night was just sort of dependent on whether or not the recording truck was present, really, wasn't it? It's just... <laughs> And and again, you couldn't do, you couldn't record something on a phone, could you? You couldn't. Everything was was pretty heavy duty that was required to to do one of these things. And so, if you were going to buy in a a recording rig, then you wouldn't have too many chances to actually use it, would you? Well, I think the only response to that is take care of all of your memories, but you cannot relive them. Oh, very, very profound, that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, so on that note, shall we dive into uh, Last Thoughts, Rich? Um, yeah. Kick off? Yeah, I mean, I've been very down on this record. I think it's probably worth the, just mentioning my disclaimer. I'm still, obviously, a, a very, very big Bob Dylan fan. And so just because I'm criticising this as much as I am, doesn't mean that I don't think there's great stuff on it. I just think it's it's compared to the other stuff which we've listened to um, of his to date. This just doesn't really measure up in the same way, but that's not saying that it's, it's bad necessarily. I think that the whole story of the Rolling Thunder review is really one, as we've mentioned already, about mystique and about magic. And I don't think that this gets captured on this record and I think it's I want so much almost to think oh yeah this is what it would have been like but you just you don't don't really come close on on hard rain and I think therefore certainly if you were someone listening to this in 1976 who hadn't been to the shows I think you'd have just been left really wondering what they were like because I don't think that this is an accurate document but yeah that's my that's my two penneth or five cents depending on the exchange rate okay over to you Mr Welsh yeah, I think there's very little really to commend this album to the listener now, um, particularly because of the, the world we live in where we do have like series, as you've talked about. You can go and watch the TV show, the TV special, which I think is a better encapsulation of, of the concert. 
with, with better tracks on it, frankly, a lot of the time. And of course, you, you've, it, it doesn't come close, as you say, to capturing what we saw in the autumn. And, and given that we do have all that stuff now, I think you've got to be in a very particular mood to want to take this down off the shelf and, and listen to it. There was one thing that I wanted to flag up, though, just in, as, a, as a final thought. We've talked a lot about this difference between what happened in the autumn and what happened in the spring and how they're, they're quite different beasts in many ways. And I think that you actually could make the case that the night of a hurricane two in January 76 marks one of those demarcation points in Bob Dylan's career. We, we love to do this. We artificially impose these, uh, these uh, break points in his life, in his career. It must be infuriating to him. Um, and it's, it's totally arbitrary, of course. Well, but... it, yeah, you'd be pretty damn sure that he was not thinking. <laughs> break point <laughs> come up today. <laughs> um, but, you know, the famous ones are the motorcycle accident, you know, the, uh, the finding Jesus and all the rest of it. But I think there is something about that. Desire and Blood on the Tracks are very different records. But I think what connects them is uh, that although there's a lot of bitterness on Blood on the Tracks, there's also a lot of melancholy, a lot of tenderness, a lot of kind of searching for something. And you can see that sort of finding expression in the songs on Desire and the, the myth making, the narrative building. That's absent completely from what we're coming on to in Street Legal. And I think the first bit of the Rolling Thunder with you, you still have that. You've still got the same sorts of arrangements. You've got the same sorts of feelings. You've got the, the mysticism of desire. You've got the tenderness of blood on the tracks in a lot of the performances. By the time we get to Hard Rain, that's all gone out of the window. And I think it sits a lot closer to the sort of feeling that we get on Street Legal, which is still a couple of years down the road. Yeah. But that hardness, that anger, that, I don't know, that angularity, I feel that a lot more in Street Legal than I do in any of the other records that have led up to this point. So, yeah, I think there's something, whatever it was artistically, personally, I think there's, there's a demarcation between the two legs of the Rolling Thunder review. So it's a mistake to think of this record as harking back to what had been in 75. And it really foreshadows what's coming in 78 and arguably the uh, the born again phase that follows hard on its heels yeah we will explore this more as we uh, move down the line thank you very much indeed for listening as always if you have any questions or comments or suggestions we will be delighted to hear them look for us on twitter at dylan american and we will look forward to you joining us next time when we will be discussing street legal thank you